Hello, and welcome to the Smart Karma Podcast. I'm Michael Tejos. Every week on the podcast, we share a presentation and discussion from our webinar Wednesdays, when we sit down with Smart Karma insight providers and selected experts from around the world to break down the key topics you care about in Asia's markets. You can find us wherever you listen to podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pocket Casts, and so on. If you like what we do, consider leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or your chosen podcast app, as this really helps more people discover the show. Thank you for being with us, and enjoy the episode. Hello, and welcome to another webinar by Smart Karma. I'm Valerie, and today I have the pleasure of welcoming analyst Syed Disak, who will be taking us through his views on the Asian economy's outlook and its opportunities. Syed is a professional economist with over 33 years of experience covering the global economy. With significant expertise in the US, China, Japan, and emerging markets. He worked with U.S. investment banks for 25 years, covering institutional investors in Europe, Middle East, Far East, and Australia. He also covers financial markets on a multi-asset basis and has been an independent economist covering the global economy and financial markets for the past eight years, since founding the SAC Macro Research in London. Before we start a bit of standard housekeeping, as always, please feel free to send in your questions for Syed throughout the webinar using your Q&A button on your Zoom app, and we will do our best to get to them during our Q&A section. Please do not reshare the contents of this webinar without express permission. A recording will be available afterwards and sent to all of our participants on the registration page. And with that said, Syed, thank you so much once again for being with us today. The floor is yours. Thank you very much, Valerie. And good morning from from London, a rather somber place today, given recent events in our country. I'd like to keep the presentation quite succinct, down to about 25 minutes. We've got a lot of ground to cover. I can talk for hours, but we don't have hours. Without further ado, I will press on. My expertise primarily has been in the U.S. equity and fixed income markets. And if you look at the way the world operates and the way Asia has operated over the last 30, 40 years, Asia is very dependent upon external demand as a source of economic growth. Therefore, developments in the United States and the developments in Europe have a bearing on their economic outlook. I just want to spend a very quick amount of time talking about what's happening in the US as such. You saw the big sell-off in Wall Street overnight, given the disappointing consumer price data that came out yesterday. The bottom line, I think, is very simple. The Fed is trying to restore price stability, but markets believe that the Fed can actually back off a hawkish stance sooner rather than later. Unfortunately, the market's optimistic view of Fed policy doesn't tie up with economic history. Historically, it's been very difficult to tame US inflation with real interest rates still in negative territory. US real interest rates need to go into positive territory. Hence, I think the Fed policy outlook for the remainder of this year is going to be erring on the side of being hawkish. I wouldn't rule out the Fed funds rate hitting 4% by the end of the year, which would be quite an aggressive revision from current forward guidance. And obviously, there are going to be implications there for the dollar exchange rate and global financial conditions. So that's the US backdrop as such. I don't think the Fed is going to be in a hurry to persuade the market that it's looking at easing policy anytime soon. Price stability, I think, will take at least 12 months to restore in the United States. So I think uh, we have to look forward 
to a period whereby the Fed remains hawkish for longer. And obviously, there are going to be capital market implications for that. Let's look at, at Asia. Well, it's been quite an eventful summer. In China, it's been a memorable summer, but it's been memorable for the wrong reasons. If we cast our minds back to July, we had stories about there being mortgage strikes in China that threatened to unravel the real estate market as such. And last month, we were littered with reports about droughts and how that's impacting electricity supply and how that is going to adversely impact economic growth. Let's look at those in turn. After the financial crisis, you saw slowly but surely a deceleration in the long-term growth rate of the Chinese economy. And you know, although people fretted about that deceleration, that deceleration was at least predictable. The arrival of the pandemic, however, has completely destroyed the predictability of Chinese economic growth. What that means, I think, in terms of an investment perspective, it means that the predictability of corporate sector performance is compromised. And therefore, foreign investors, I think, should demand a higher risk premium for, but for investing in China, <clears throat> because the predictability of economic growth and corporate performance has been compromised given the onset of the pandemic. To put things into perspective, the official government growth target this year is 5% as such. In the first half of the year, GDP growth has averaged only 2.6% year over year. So for China to achieve the 5% growth target, growth in the second half of the year must average 7.4% year over year. That is a very, very tough call for a number of reasons. Let's look at those shocks, if you like, to China's economic backdrop one by one. If we go back to July and the mortgage strikes as such, you know, the, the fear was is that that mortgage strike was going to spread and it was ultimately going to impact financially viable property developers. And that in turn would lead to a, a tightening of mortgage lending standards. And that would in turn produce a decline in real estate prices. It was a self-reinforcing tsunami, if you like. And yeah, I thought those those fears were, were overblown as such. The mortgage strikes per se were probably only going to impact around 3 to 4% of outstanding mortgage loans in China. So the crisis was containable as long as the strike didn't spread. I'm waiting to see updates on, on how that has fared since then. But <clears throat> I think in terms of what it means for the economy moving forward, housing imparts very, very important multiplier effects in terms of consumer spending. When you buy a house, you have to furnish it. Consumer durable spending is closely linked to the housing market. And I think what's the, what's uncertain here is what happens to the mortgage strikers as such? Are they going to be able to walk away from those loans or uh, is the legal structure in China going to basically force those mortgage strikers to basically pay back those bad debts and ultimately their credit ratings become impaired as such. So the lack of a bankruptcy law in China, I think, creates a considerable amount of uncertainty about how housing-related consumer spending may pan forward moving in, in the coming months. I think what we really need in terms of clarity is some kind of ruling from the Supreme Court about personal bankruptcy law in China, and obviously that will involve consequences for lenders and borrowers. It just shows you how important the real estate investment in China has become. Um, Personally, I have been against, I've always been against governments adopting official growth targets for their economy, because ultimately the fixation is we have to do whatever is necessary to achieve that target, irrespective of the, of the consequences or the dynamics or the logic of the dynamics driving that growth. And 
what you've seen in China is that basically residential real estate has become a very, very important driver of growth in order to achieve those targets as such. And to put these numbers into perspective, in the US, prior to the housing bust in 2006, residential investment as a percent of GDP peaked at 6%. And as you can see from the chart, in China, those numbers are considerably higher. And that, I think, is, is a testimony to the role of state capitalism in China, something which is absent in Western economies. In Western economies, this particular share of GDP is much lower, but it's much more volatile. In China, it's, it's much higher, but it's much more stable. And I think, I think moving forward, in consequence of the mortgage strikes that we've seen this year, I think that ultimately governments are, the government is, is going to get banks, developers, asset manage, management companies to ensure that developers have adequate funding to complete projects. Ultimately, I think the goal of the strikes was to basically put pressure on the government, banks and the developers to complete projects as such. So I don't see any major change in, in, in kind of state's role in the way how capital is allocated towards a residential real estate in China anytime. The other big thing which we had to contend with in China during the summer was a, a drought. So significant parts of the country were basically faced with severe temperatures. And in some parts of the country, particularly Sichuan province, the ability to generate hydropower became significantly compromised. And as you know, Sichuan is quite quite a well-developed state economically as such. It does rely, as well, I think it is, in fact, the, the, the province with the highest reliance on renewables as a percent of total power generation. So an event like a drought was going to expose its vulnerability in terms of being able to supply power. And so if we look at what's, what's happened as a result of of this drought. Basically, you've had power curbs, you've had the closure of shipping route along the Yangtze, and that's basically put some strain on supply chains and will probably put some strains on downstream corporate profit margins as such. The big concern is that, particularly in Sichuan, it's a big center for lithium production, particularly lithium batteries, which are going to be used for EVs. And the, and the fear is there is that continued production disruption is going to create bottlenecks and that's going to raise battery prices and that's going to put pressure on EV manufacturers. You know, I think the baseline scenario that I would embrace for, for that is that I think that this kind of hydropower crisis that you've seen particularly in Sichuan, will ease, it will abate. Unlike last year's power crisis, which was due to a general shortage of coal, China appears to be importing more coal and using more coal. So I think one of one of the lessons that's going to come out of this year's drought is that the, the transition to renewables is going to take longer. And I think there's another byproduct here of this, of this drought um, outside of supply chains. It's in the realm of, of food inflation. We're coming up to that time of year where the vast bulk of agricultural crops are actually harvested in China. Around 70% or so of, of, of a total crop is done around this time of year, entering into autumn. So though there is a a potential that the dry conditions that we saw in, in August will actually lower crop yields significantly. And what actually might happen as well is that uh, the actual cost of agricultural production in terms of inputs is also going to rise. So I, I am bracing myself for some uptick in food inflation in China. Now, if the shortfall in food is significant, then we could potentially see China go onto global markets to secure food supplies. Now, that will obviously have an impact on global prices. What I'm looking out for at the moment, I'm looking at what happens to rice prices as such. India, I 
I understand, is keen to impose a 20% export tax on rice, which, uh, if implemented, could have a significant knock-on effect on on, on rice prices globally. And uh, if, if, if China comes on to the global market demanding rice, then you can imagine the scope for elevated prices in that in that particular crop. I think if we look at the, the general backdrop as to how long this is going to ease its way through as such, that these problems to, to ease. Now, I would expect it to basically last for at, at least three to six months. I think that we've had some alleviation of the extreme temperatures in China since August, but things aren't quite yet returning to normal. In particular, Sichuan tended to export its surplus electricity to the eastern provinces. That included Shanghai. And given that there's no surplus electricity being produced in places like Sichuan, there are going to be ripple effects through being felt in some of the eastern provinces. So that might put some constraints on industrial activity in some of the eastern provinces. So the one, the one unknown, which I'm I'm trying to get my head around is what happens to lockdown policy after the CCP meets next month. Hitherto, they they have embraced a zero COVID tolerance policy. And so just looking at what's going to happen in in China, basically, you've got some tightened travel restrictions being imposed that are going to last and through to the end of October until after the party convention as such, which I believe is on October the 16th. So you've got restricted movements in China lasting up until the end of October. That's going to be negative for for domestic tourism and obviously service consumption. So I think it's going to be a tough call. It's going to be a very, very tough call, I think, for China to make that 5% growth target. The policy support will, I think, will be forthcoming in the form of fiscal easing and also further easing in monetary policy by the PBOC as such. The baseline scenario would be, I think, continued pressure on the corporate sector in China stemming from domestic activity. One safety valve that is at the disposal of the authorities in China is a weakening exchange rate. And we can talk about that more in depth later on. In terms of financial fallout from the drought, I think that's going to be quite limited. It's basically the rural banks that I think are going to face the biggest exposure in terms of agricultural crop losses. But with every cloud, there comes a silver lining. I think what this year's losses actually may create is a demand for insurance against catastrophic losses as such. So property and casualty insurance um, may see a pickup in demand, uh, particularly in the agricultural sector. And I suspect that you'll also get a pickup in the demand for reinsurance within that sector. So I think what I'd like to do now is to proceed to Japan. In some ways, you know, uh, Japan's recovery from COVID, it, it does remind me a little bit about, uh, about what's happening in China in the sense that it's become more unpredictable. It, it comes in sort of fits and starts as such. And if you look at Tankan for large companies for manufacturing and non-manufacturing, we have yet to surpass the pre-pandemic peak there. And I think the outlook for Japan, I would say it's one whereby it's going to be kind of more of the same. I think you're going to get slow growth. And I think monetary policy is likely to remain highly accommodative for the foreseeable future. Governor Kuroda, his term expires as in April of next year. So I don't expect to see any change in the BOJ's commitment to yield curve control. And that will obviously have consequences for the yen exchange rate against against the US dollar as such. But what, what's been really kind of strange about Japan is that you know, despite elevated levels of CPI in the West, in, in Europe and in the US, Japan's inflation rate has remained remarkably stable. And 
Japan's been trying its best through massive quantitative easing to get 2% CPI for Asia since you know, for the last eight, nine years as such. And it's consistently failed to achieve that policy goal. Now, believe it or not, we actually are in excess of 2% as we speak. I think if we you know, try to read the mind of Governor Kuroda, I think his commitment to yield curve control is driven by his view that underlying economic activity, stripping out the natural recovery from the pandemic, is basically weak. And given, given that underlying weak backdrop, no aggressive balance sheet expansion of by the BOJ is still, is still warranted. I'm of the view that achieving inflation, particularly core inflation, above 2% is going to be a big challenge in Japan for a number of reasons. Some, and some of it is, in fact, cultural. There are very, very powerful structural forces in Japan that are contributing to continued deflationary psychology and a backdrop whereby engineering price increases is quite difficult. First of all, if you look at consumer demand in the, in the 20 years prior to the pandemic, basically consumer demand was actually underperforming headline GDP, which is in stark contrast to the US. And in Japan as well, you've had very, very deeply embedded low inflationary expectations. And once once this kind of deflationary psychology, if you like, gets hold of the private sector, it becomes very difficult to escape those shackles, despite the massive policy stimulus that you've seen from the fiscal authorities and also the monetary authorities as well. The other thing as well, which I think makes a 2% target sustainable, is basically employment practice in, in Japan. Companies in Japan are far more reluctant to basically engage in shedding labor, particularly during bad times. Uh, stability of employment, I, I think, is taken very seriously in the corporate sector in Japan. And in return for stability of employment, basically workers are happy to accept modest stroke benign wage increases year in, year out. So the wage inflation backdrop in Japan has actually been incredibly benign and low by G7 standards. And so what that means is that getting a significant deterioration in unit labor costs in Japan that will prompt firms to boost prices to, to basically cover operating margins, those risks are reduced. But I think even in areas where price competition is intense, basically in, in the service sector, price competition is intense because companies are paranoid about not losing market share. And the ability to pass on price increases, even if unit labor costs um, appear to be becoming a nascent problem, companies in services in particular, they are reluctant to pass on price increases for fear of losing market share. Another thing which I think is interesting about the Japanese inflation dynamic is the willingness of multinational companies to use profits from international operations and exports to basically subsidize domestic operations. So that takes the pressure off domestic operations to basically pass through price increases. A sustained increase in, in Japan's inflation rate, particularly at the core level, that I think is potentially an, an outlier out there. I don't embrace the, the thesis that Japan is suddenly going to go from a, a deflationary economy into an inflationary economy. So what's, what's the outlook for Japan? I think continued sluggish growth and the onus, I think, will be very much on the authorities to keep the yen weak and to basically try to get as much external demand as a source of growth as possible for the next six to 12 months. And, uh, you know, people have said the new governor of the Bank of Japan is going to uh, quickly revert to scaling back into 
intervention in the bond market. You know, let's see what happens. I, I don't think that should be taken as a given. I think basically the new governor, whoever that person is, will, will judge from economic and financial conditions at the time of entering what the best course of policy is. But I think for the foreseeable future, the yen is going to remain weak and it could be in an interesting back against the yuan. Now, I'm old enough to remember the um, Asian financial crisis in the mid-1990s. It, it only seems like yesterday, but the lessons of that uh, of that episode left some, some deep legacies. And I'm just fearing now, looking back, are we seeing forces in play which could exert pressure on ASEAN countries? Let's start off with why did Asia starts experiencing economic and financial pressures in the mid-1990s. One very good reason, the Japanese yen started to depreciate very, very significantly from 1994 through to 1996. As you can see from that chart, the peak in that real exchange rate uh, occurred around 1995. And basically, you had a very plunge in the real exchange rate for the yen. Japan's exporters suddenly became competitive again. And that put a squeeze on their ASEAN competitors. And uh, all of a sudden, countries in, in the ASEAN region that were running current account deficits were facing big financial pressures. So a disaster story, which uh, some people could conjure up, is are we going to see a repeat of pressures emerging through currency devaluation in Japan? And now this time around China, that puts pressure on the ASEAN countries. I think the odds of the yen's depreciation by itself putting pressure on uh, ASEAN, I think uh, th that might be a bit far-fetched, but I think the big difference between now and the mid-90s, China did not devalue in the mid-90s, okay? The yuan has devalued. So you have a combination of two of Asia's biggest economies seeking weaker currencies. So I think you are going to see de facto pressure put on the competitiveness of ASEAN countries. And I hope this is not uh, too close to home. But Singapore, I think it is quite a good example as to what could happen, or it's a good example, let, let me say, of some of the challenges facing the ASEAN region, both in the short term and in the medium term. In the short term, okay, inflation, particularly food inflation, has been a problem in the region. A lot of that is imported. Therefore, uh, the need to maintain currency strength is seen as being an important policy goal in order to mitigate the impact of imported food inflation in particular. And you know that currency strength occurring at a time when two of your biggest competition, Japan and China, are able to weaken their currencies because they have low inflation, that raises the ante in terms of what are the potential ramifications moving forward in terms of the economic performance of ASEAN countries. What I think investors, particularly in the ASEAN countries, need to, to look at is in the short term, okay, you've got an inflation problem related to food, a lot of them imported. Competitivity of exports is potentially going to be undermined by currency weakness in China and also in Japan. In the medium term, however, I think there are some structural issues which require some thinking. The labor market, for example, in Singapore is very tight, okay? And what you've seen, particularly coming out of the pandemic, is that you've seen a significant escalation, okay, in unit labor costs in Singapore. If you were to replicate this time series for South Korea, you would get a similar trend, particularly coming out of the pandemic. Uh, unit labor costs in South Korea have risen very significantly. You've also seen a similar dynamic in Hong Kong. So uh, labor market pressures, as testified by low unemployment rates, leading to wage gains that are not being offset totally by productivity gains, that poses a threat to the medium term outlook for core inflation. 
And what I think investors need to keep a close eye out on in terms of how inflation moves and develops in the coming 18 months, 24 months, is unit labor cost inflation going to be staying at the levels which basically raise the ante on corporations to raise selling prices. What you've seen in the United States this year, you've seen a similar sharp uptick in unit labor cost inflation. US companies are paranoid about maintaining high operating margins. How have they maintained those high operating margins? They simply raise selling prices. And lo and behold, that shows up in the form of higher inflation. In terms of the ASEAN countries, I think Singapore provides a very good example here is how much pressure does rising unit labor cost inflation put on the corporate sector to raise their selling prices? And you know, obviously that will have implications for monetary policy and the valuation, particularly of longer duration assets. So if the inflation backdrop deteriorates, then I think that equity valuations probably need to be scaled back to reflect that fact. On that note, I think I've kind of talked enough. I hope I haven't gone way beyond my allotted time. No, you're all good, Syed. Thank you so much. As mentioned before, uh, viewers, you can now send in your questions for our speaker using the Q&A button on your Zoom app. If you guys have any questions at all, please feel free to send them in so that we can get Syed to answer them. Maybe I can start off with a question from our team first. So Syed, in your opinion, which Asian economy are you the most positive on right now? The most positive on? I I mean, I I think... uh, in terms of being unambiguously positive, I think it's difficult to construct an outlook for any given ASEAN countries whereby there aren't downside risks. I think that the most positive ASEAN country that I would probably be looking at would probably be somewhere like Vietnam, which I think you know, from a longer term perspective could benefit significantly from the displacement of direct foreign investment that was going into China into places like Vietnam. I think in terms of optimism, I think the optimism very much has to be molded over what time frame. I think that's more of a medium term view because I do think that the West, whether you like it or not, is trying to economically decouple from China. And they those present direct foreign investment opportunities for the rest of the ASEAN countries. So I think the one that's that do spring to mind, I think immediately would probably be Vietnam. You know, I, I think uh, the demographic backdrop in China and uh, and Japan are obviously uh, negative. Singapore, I think, has a cost pressure absorption issue. And you know, you've had a lot of migration of people leaving Hong Kong, coming to Singapore, and that's created uh, an inflation problem in housing in Singapore. So you know, it's difficult to construct an, a 100% positive outlook for Asia over the next six to nine months. But I think you're likely to see a diversion of direct foreign investment away from China and into places like Vietnam and Indonesia and Malaysia even. So uh, I think the optimism has to be, I think, more medium term as opposed to over the next 12 months. I hope that answers your question robustly. Definitely. So, you know, in in reverse, for the Asian economies that you are the least positive on, would you say that's Japan and China? Unfortunately, the largest two economies face the biggest problems. (laughs) So I think think you've summed it up very well. I think the problem with Japan is demographics. Okay, there's the population is declining. And when you get an aging population, the number of transactions that households become engaged in falls. So market opportunities within Japan are basically compressed. The other thing as well, which is interesting about Japan is that economic growth in Japan has become increasingly concentrated around the Tokyo prefecture. Young people have left other prefectures in different parts of the country and, and, and they've migrated to Tokyo. So I, I think Japan is, is quirky, but you know, I think in terms of the 
the challenges that Japan is is facing, they are probably quite quite mild compared with the numerous challenges which China is facing at this point in time. I think you know, this real estate, this dependence upon real estate, I think faces significant challenges. You know, ultimately, China wants to migrate from being a middle-income country into a high-income country. And I don't think you can really do that with the state playing such a big role in the allocation of capital as such. So state capitalism, I think, needs to retreat. But, you know, I think at the same time, the CCP is very wary that a total withdrawal of state capitalism could lead to significant social unrest and disorder. I think they've got one eye on the level of youth unemployment in China, which has remained very elevated since the pandemic. The outlook for consumer spending in China is very, very, very challenging. So I think those are the countries that face the biggest problem are, first of all, um, China, secondly, Japan, and they are the two largest economies. And hence, no, no surprise as to why they are looking at external demand as being a, a, an avenue to try and get some form, form of growth momentum and some, hence weak currencies. For sure. And you know, with Japan and China both having such strict tourism laws as of COVID, do you think as you know, these countries start to open up, especially for Japan, they're starting to slightly open up a little bit more now in terms of yeah. tourism? Do you think that will help their economies at all? Do you think that will give Japan a greater advantage as compared to China, which is still closed? Yeah, well, I think, okay, now I've seen some recent data on international arrivals and the recovery in tourism in Asia has actually lagged behind the recovery in Latin America and the US and also Europe. That's largely due to the, the slow removal of restrictions related to the pandemic. So yeah, I think the potential upside in Asia is going to be greater. Now, China, I suspect, will be very, very slow to allow unrestricted international travel as such. And you know, to me, that's that's a great shame because ultimately, I think, it's, how can I put it? I mean, I think foreign travel coming in, I think it's good for an economy. It's a source of demand as such. And I do think that China's kind of medium-term economic growth outlook is going to be very much impacted by relations with the rest of the world. To me, the quicker China opens up, the better its, its growth outlook prospects are, are going to be. Agreed, for sure. So we have another question from the floor, which is, how does decreasing Brent prices benefit Asian investments? With Brent decreasing, what sectors in Asia should investors be looking at in the next half a year to a year? Wow. Okay. Well, I think the decline in Brent is largely a, a reflection of lower demand. They're basically, basically commodity prices, are, they are very, very sensitive to changes in monetary conditions. So you've got a, a tightening global monetary backdrop. Uh, so small wonder why Brent has, has fallen. To me, the natural destination of capital would be under a scenario whereby oil prices are going lower would be towards energy intensive sectors of the economy. Depending on the likely duration of, of softening in, in oil prices, I think the opportunities in oil oil importing countries in Asia could basically increase because that will take pressure off underlying inflation in those countries as well. So the answer to, the, to that question is look at uh, uh, energy intensive specifically oil intensive using sectors of the economy and those countries that are net oil importers though those would be the ones whereby you're going to get some relief on terms of headline inflation and um, as a result financial asset prices in those countries should fare should be set to benefit from that backdrop wonderful okay we have another question in specifically for singapore what does the My road ahead look like for singapore if it were to taper inflation 
Right. Okay. Well, I love Singapore. I've been there many, many times. And the outlook for Singapore, I think, is actually very interesting. The government is clearly trying to counter aging demographics. The the population is aging and you've got potentially a a labor shortage looming. And so what they're trying to do, as you're well aware, is that they're trying to extend the or enhance the ability of older workers to remain in, in the labor force for longer. Okay. Now, I think that's good because the older people have a greater sense of loyalty to employers than some of today's younger generation. I think one of the reasons why you've got a wage inflation problem in Singapore is that employee loyalty is not what it used to be. You know, particularly at startups, you can join a place for for 12 months and then all of a sudden another enterprise is seeded and they're going to pay more than others. So you get people jumping ship. Okay, so staff retention, I think, has been an issue in Singapore, I suspect. But that's going to change, I think, because higher funding costs are going to create a headwind for startups as such. And in the old days of easy money in the US, when you had 0% interest rates, it was very easy for startups to raise some money, okay, spend that money. 18 months later, we said, oh, we need more money. And they would get that money again. It's not so easy now. You know, cash is providing actually quite an attractive alternative to risky startup uh, investments. In the near term, I think Singapore's facing headwinds uh, related to the external demand outlook. I think in terms of domestic activity, I still think that there's probably some upside due to tourism arrivals increasing. I think domestic consumption should be okay, but not brilliant. And, you know, I think in terms of the longer backdrop, there are challenges related to cost pressures in, in the labor market. You know, everyone says, well, you can solve cost pressures through immigration, but now because Singapore's constrained by land size, higher immigration basically means higher embedded costs. So I think Singapore, in terms of finding ways to keep production costs down, I think they particularly have to look at ways of enhancing capital productivity moving forward as a means of offsetting labor supply shortages. Wonderful. Maybe I will close off this session with one last question from the team. You're welcome. So Syed, where do you expect inflation to be the most persistent in? Okay, that's a vitally important question to the entire world. But the countries that matter, okay, are, are the US, obviously. China, very, very quickly on China, I think that the outlook for Chinese headline inflation will primarily be driven by food inflation as such. That's, that's the upside risk to China's inflation from food. Okay, in the US, slightly different story. Inflation is likely to be stickier for longer because the inflation pressures are most profound in services. Price movements are much stickier. In the US, we've got a problem with respect to housing inflation. Rental costs in the US are are, are rising very vibrantly because housing affordability for buyers has been undermined by a very vibrant housing sector which is one reason why the Fed is is scaling back its its balance sheet. Because I, I think that uh, they, they bought um, over $2.5 trillion worth of mortgage-backed securities to underpin housing. But housing in the US no longer leads life support from the Fed. So the source of persistent, sticky inflation in the US is likely to come in the service sector and specifically from within housing. And I think that is what... Uh, markets have struggled to understand. They think inflation is going to fall off very quickly. I'm arguing that service sector inflation is what the Fed is focused on, and it will remain elevated for longer. So I hope that's a robust enough answer to your question. 
No, for sure. That was really insightful. Thank you so much, Syed. And as that's our last question, perhaps to close off this webinar today, Syed, do you have any final words of advice to investors watching this webinar right now or any final cautionary like sentences to close off today's webinar? Whether we like it or not, inflation is back. Okay, I don't think it's going to remain as elevated as current levels in some parts of the world is going to be an issue for longer. I think in the US, it could be in the Eurozone, it could be as well. Remember, inflation is a tax on capital allocation. Effectively, the hurdle rate for deploying capital will rise as such. And what you want to do at all costs is to avoid investments in industries that have low operating margins and have a lack of ability to basically price on price increases, input cost pressures into final selling prices. Those are the sectors that you want to avoid and invest in those companies that basically are able to deploy some semblance of pricing power. That is where ultimately capital is going to gravitate towards. Awesome. Thank you so much, Syed. And thank you to everyone here today for your time. And thank you so much for attending. If you wish to keep track of Syed's work, I recommend following his profile on Smart Karma so you never miss any of his insights. Please note that Syed is also available for bespoke research requests or premium services. So if you wish to engage him for that, please contact your Smart Karma account manager. If you have any other questions or comments, please email us at research at smartkarma.com. And with that, Syed, if you're ever in Singapore, definitely let the team know. We'll be more than happy to bring you around for sure. Absolutely. I think you know, getting out to Asia, it's constrained by a lack of planes going out to Asia. You know, BA is not flying to Hong Kong and Cathay, Cathay have rationed their flights to, to Hong Kong. So I, I will be down there. Don't worry. And I look forward to catching up. Thank you very much. Look forward to catching up with you as well. Thank you, everyone, for attending today. Thank you, Syed, once again. Goodbye, everybody. Thank you. That's it for this week. If you like this episode, please share it with your networks. Subscribe to the podcast feed so you don't miss an episode and follow Smart Karma on your social media. We're Smart Karma everywhere. And of course, don't forget to visit smartkarma.com for truly independent, differentiated investment research. As always, thank you very much for listening and see you next time.